Hey everyone, and welcome to Fluid Conversations, a new podcast sponsored by the National Science Foundation, or for the people in the know, the NSA. There are millions of podcasts out there, so I thought that having a new one was a great idea. What's different about this one? Not a lot, except that I'm going to talk to people conducting research sponsored by the NSF and allow them to tell you what they're doing with your tax money, if you live in the United States, of course. We will have candid conversations so that we can get to know who these people are, what they do, how they do it, and more importantly, why all this matters to you. Okay, let's talk about science without getting bored out of our minds. Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of Fluid Conversations. Can you believe it? We made it to the third episode. We haven't been canceled and that's because we don't need any funding for this. Anyway, the funding has already been provided. We are coming to you from Happy Valley or also known as State College Pennsylvania, home of the Pennsylvania State University. This is a beautiful Halloween morning. It is cold outside, but hey, we like it cold here. I am your host, uh, Dr. Vladimir Ramos Alvarado. I know, I know that weird name throws people off. So Russian name with two super Hispanic last names is so weird. Um, back then when Trump, won, Trump was president, I was saying that he would be so, so confused from knowing me. So, all right, Vladimir, pro-Russia, I love you, guy. Ramos Alvarado, a Mexican, what are you doing here? So I guess they would, both will cancel out or I don't know, something like that. Anyway, so our third guest in this wonderful Fluid Conversations episode is Dr. Margaret Byron. Hey, Margaret, how are you? Hi, Vladimir. It's great to be here with you today. All right. Thank you. Thank you for accepting my invitation to join us. And this is so funny. So Margaret and I are basically neighbor office, right, Margaret? That's right. Yeah. So we are, how far apart are we? Three doors, maybe? I can, I can look out my office door and see your office door right now. You got some good Halloween decorations. Right. It's just a, I don't have any. Just it's one, really sad. One tiny yeah. thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's so funny that we're so close, yet we are recording in separate locations because of oh. the low budget of the podcast. We don't have a studio. Um, and because our schedules are full of stuff, you know, it's like you got meetings, you got students that want things and you got all kinds of stuff. And it's uh, it's, it's hard to get time to, to, to share. Exactly. Exactly. And also, it's funny that we are so close, yet I think this is the longest conversation that we will ever we will ever have. Uh, oh my know. gosh, that's so true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you run into people in the hallway and you're like, oh man, I want to catch up with this person, but also I got like 19 bajillion things to do. Right. So hard. Yeah. Right. It's so uh, ridiculous. Anyway, uh, again, the topic of the podcast for the new listeners is uh, Fluid Conversations. So that's the topic the titled Fluid Conversations. And the idea is that we're bringing people doing research sponsored by the National Science Foundation, more specifically the Fluid Dynamics Program, and we're bringing some accountability to the taxpayer. So, Margaret, I hope you have your books open, and uh, mm -hmm. this is an audit. Surprise! Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, anyway, that is the idea of the podcast, getting to know, first, getting to know the, uh, the researcher uh, from a personal point of view. I haven't even done that, and you're my neighbor. That's crazy. So I'm excited. We've uh, known each other for a good while. We started at Penn State around the same time, right? You started maybe six months before I did. Uh, no, not really. That's why you got the big office, remember? Because <laughs> yeah. you got here in like May and I didn't get here till August. And then you're like, you know, sorry, you get the little one. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. was, the, I think that's one of the first interactions that we had, right? I was like, yeah, you took the big office. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't oh. an office, Margaret, to be fair. It was a storage room. Did I tell you that? No. No. I, okay. Okay. So. Um, yeah, you made it nice. Yeah. Right. So when I came yeah. here, it was actually in May. You're right. May of 2017. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah. I made a, uh, some sort of arrangement with the previous department head, and she's like, "Okay, you can start in the summer." Uh, long story short, I was broke, <laughs> so I had to start. I had to start early. Grad school, postdoc is so hard. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Shout uh, out to all the grad students and postdocs listening. You know, there is a there is a Light at the end of the tunnel. There is. Yeah. There is. Absolutely. And shout out to all the Penn State fans. But so anyway, yeah, I came here. That's true, yeah. <laughs> I came here and uh, they say, oh, here's your office. It was a huge place full of trash. 
Yeah. It was full of furniture. There was one of those yeah. old printers slash copiers. Uh, what else? Uh, they ha It was dusty, smelly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm Mexican. Hey, so <laughs> rolled up I my sleeves, got to work, <laughs> cleaned it up. And uh, I'm just, just kidding. That's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, yeah, it, I, I, <laughs> I made it pretty. I made it pretty. Disassemble no. the two desks that they had in there. I just kept one. And then when they w came to my office, hey, we're ready to furnish your office to make it pretty. Guys, I'm done. Already done. Yeah, just All right, I'm way ahead of you. Yeah, grab the trash. Yeah. Get out of here. I'm busy. <laughs> you know? Oh, you're, you're, I already started. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so yeah, yeah, that happened. That happened when, uh, when we started. So... Anyway, yeah, so we are bringing accountability to the taxpayer. It's uh, the turn of Margaret Byron. Uh, it's a, uh, and that's another thing. Do you always go with, uh, by the name Margaret or Maggie? Yeah, or... I, I've tried a couple of nicknames in my life. I was actually named after um, a Meg. Uh -huh. You'd be surprised. There are a lot of nicknames for Margaret. There's Maggie. Yeah. Uh, Peggy. Peggy is actually a nickname for Margaret. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I have an aunt named Peggy. Um no, I tried a couple of nicknames when I was a kid. Nothing really stuck. Um, I, when I was an undergrad, I did a study abroad in Australia. Uh -huh. I lived in Melbourne, Australia for about five or six months. And I don't know if you've ever interacted with many Australians, nope. but they diminutize everything. Every word becomes some kind of cute nicknamey word, right? People talk about shrimp on the Barbie, right? Nobody actually says that, <laughs> but, but they do. Like if your name is James, uh -huh. they will call you Jimmy. Even though Jimmy has more syllables than James. Right. I know. So everybody has some kind of diminutive name. And so there, a lot of people would call me Maggie just because it was inconceivable that they would not, you know, make a diminutive of my name. Right. Okay. But what about your family? Are they calling you Margaret? No, they just call me Margaret. Yeah, what? they do. They do. Yeah. Mom and dad? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, a great or story. like hey you or actually I get called by my sister's names a lot. I grew up getting called by my sister's names and I eventually answered to the dog's name. You know, just you know yeah, as one a lot does. of chaos in my house growing up. Yeah, as one does. Anyway, that, yeah. that's a great start. So for the first yeah. section of the podcast the podcast, as always, we're gonna get to know the researcher doing research sponsored by NSF. And the first question, Margaret, that I have for you, and, and this is a great start. So who are you? Who are you? Tell us something about yourself. Uh, elaborate on um, where you currently live, where mm -hmm. you work, uh, family yeah. situation, yeah. any children, yeah. uh, you know, pets. What can you tell us about yourself? Um, so, well, you asked about my family. Um, one interesting thing about me is that I am a townie. I grew up right here in State College, um, went to the high school here and right. um, when I was 17 years old, graduated from high school, decided, you know, I'm going to blow this popsicle stand, never look back, um, and totally left town um, until I was, I guess, about 27, 28 years old. Wow. I can't remember. Um, but then I came back here. You know, life is funny, right? It has a way of delivering you back uh, where you and where you came from. Um, so I grew up in State College. Uh -huh. um, my family uh, in large part is still local. So my parents live about 20 minutes away. Um, I have an older sister who married her high school sweetheart, settled here in town. Uh -huh. um, and uh, my younger sister actually lives out in Columbus, Ohio. Um, all of my family are Penn State alumni, except for me. I am the only one in my family with no degrees from Penn State, but I do work here. Right, right. Um, yeah, my um, <clears throat> my mom was a nurse uh -huh. um, my dad was a programmer at penn state he was a software developer but he really worked more on the business side of the university uh -huh. so I, I didn't come from an academic family um at all right uh, and so um when i was in grad school and you know my family kind of eventually they got it okay the goal is to become a professor somewhere that's that's the end goal and my mom would say well why don't you just come and work at penn state right and i was like you know mom that's not that's not really how it works, right? They have to be hiring in my area at the right time. And it's like a one in a million chance that I would get a job at Penn State. And the whole time she was like, well, you shouldn't just come and work at Penn State. Like you come work here. <laughs> that's cute. And I'm like, that's not how it works. And of course, you know, when I, I start putting out applications on the job market, one of the first interviews I got was here at Penn State. No way. Yeah, it's true. It was really surreal. I came back here and, um, you know, they put me up in the fancy hotel on campus and 
I remember the night before the interview, I went for a drink at the hotel bar with my older sister. Uh-huh. And it was just the, the weirdest uh, thing. And when I was interviewing here, there were, th- I think, three faculty who asked to be on my, interf- my interview schedule. Right. Not because we had really much in common in terms of research, but because I had gone to high school with their kids. No way. Yeah. So three, at least three faculty, I had gone to high school with their kids who were at, at Penn State when I interviewed here. Um, and, you know, I'd be talking to, to somebody and be like, hey, look, you know, here's a picture of my grandkids. I'm like, that's great. You know, your daughter's going to be such a great mom. Do you want to talk about fluid mechanics? No. OK. Um, <laughs> Nobody wants to talk so, about research during those meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's kind of the thing. Right. You know, people are people. Um, I like to tell my uh, research group that I run here. Um, I always tell them science is made of humans. And uh, I think that, you know, you're doing a great thing with this podcast. I'm trying to kind of bring that bring that home. Um, you know, all scientists are people and the scientific enterprise is really built by people and for people. Absolutely. Uh, that's, um, not to suck up too much, but I think that's one of the really great things about NSF yeah. is they're not, they're not just about kind of cold heartedly, what is going to get me what I want in uh-huh. terms of the best science. I think NSF is really more about supporting the scientific enterprise right. writ large, right? right? It's about investing in the scientific community to build out infrastructure both human resources and technical resources to kind of get things done right right uh, yeah. at the core principle of nsf i would agree with that uh, in terms of uh, what actually happens uh, down the pipe uh, i would argue uh, some other things but we can get into that later yeah um, yeah for another yeah. Uh, fluid conversation if you will yeah All so right. the only other the only other thing that people should know about me um is that uh in addition to being faculty at penn state my spouse is also faculty at Penn State. So um, he's uh, another professor here in mechanical engineering at Penn State, and we have two kids. Right. Uh, and two kids are twins. They are almost four, and they are a handful. Uh, and so I tell people also, I, I don't have hobbies. I have children. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but when I do get a chance to myself, I like to play music. I like to cook. Um, I have a, a garden that's getting bigger every year um, and some stuff like that. Right now, your children cannot be almost four. Come on. They're almost four. What are yeah. you talking about, Margaret? Uh, I know. It's true. Oh, that is absurd. That oh my gosh. Yeah. I just remember when I heard the news. Oh, we're pregnant. Like what? Congrats. Yep. And now they're four, almost they're four. four. Yeah, they're little goblins too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I have one <laughs> going shenanigans. To... <laughs> I have one kid going to fifth grade. Can you believe that? That's insane. He's in fifth grade already? Yeah. Gosh. Wow. Yeah, yeah. remember the tiny kid coming knocking on my door? I do. I yeah. do. It's he's a fifth grader now. That's insane. It's That's it's, insane. A, it's insane. It's ridiculous. Anyway, I keep I keep telling them to stop growing. They don't listen to me though. <laughs> yeah, well, some things get uh, easier. Uh, some things some things get harder. But uh, yeah, it's part yeah. part of the experience. Anyway, super interesting, Margaret. So born here in State College, that was something that I say uh, to people. Nobody's born here. And I'm, I mean, it's, I'm just kidding, right? Yeah, a lot of people are born here, but yeah. nobody lives here. And yeah, yeah, people live here. My people children, live. You know, my children are from State College, basically. They were born in Georgia, but they grew up here. And hmm. um, yeah, they're from State College. That's crazy. All right. So super interesting story. Thank you so much for that, Margaret. Um. Let's uh, try to build up the story into Professor Byron. Could you tell us about the early years in school, elementary school, middle school, high school? Were you a good student? Yeah, I would say I was kind of a weird kid. Yeah. Um, I mean, to my parents, very great credit. They they sort of allowed me to be my, my very weird self. Uh-huh. I love to read uh, and... Um, I love to write. So I actually did a lot of creative writing as a, as a younger child. Oh my God. Uh, And uh, I liked math and I liked science. I don't think I was quite as passionate about it as, as maybe some kids are. It wasn't like I knew from the age of, you know, five that I wanted to be a scientist. Right. Um, I think at one point I wanted to be an ornithologist. That might be the closest that I came. Uh Um, But, uh, but yeah, I um, later kind of developed um, an affinity for math mostly. I, uh-huh. was, I was I was good at math. I liked math. Um, I was a little bit oblivious to the rest of the world. I would say like I didn't have a lot of friends, but I didn't really care uh-huh. um, until I got to high school, and then I found the other weirdos, and then I had friends. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think um, 
Yeah, I just I think I kind of benefited from this sort of obliviousness of what I was supposed to do or like or be. Uh-huh. Um, and so I just did what I felt like doing um, and and kind of, you know, come hell or high water. I was just like, oh, yeah, math, that's fun. I'm going to do that. And, you know, I think by by the time I was in like fifth or sixth grade, I was I think I was two years advanced in math. So I would be my little sixth grade self trekking over to the eighth grade classroom to take math and then um thankfully the the public school infrastructure here in state college is is very very good um it's uh it's quite supportive of people who want to kind of push um in in academic ways uh so when i was in high school i remember a bunch of my weird friends and i um we ran out of math Mm -hmm. before we ran out of time in school (laughs) and so i was coming up to my senior year we'd taken all the math there was to take um and a bunch of friends were like well you know uh, let's let's try to figure out how we can do some more. And one of the guys had uh, a dad who was a math professor um, here at Penn State. Uh, and so that year they actually um, managed to get a section of multivariable calculus taught at the high school. Um, and I think there were like eight or 10 kids that were um, that were taking um, the course number here at Penn State is Matthew 30, uh, which is a four credit math course. Uh-huh. Um, and so we all took that <laughs> when we were uh, kids in high school. Um, so I, I've been really fortunate to take advantage of the infrastructure of living in a, a university town um, and a, a university town with a pretty good town gown relationship. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of my path. My other great love as a kid was music. Um, I played every instrument that was in every musical ensemble. You know, some families are sports families, right? They're running for practice to practice to practice. Yeah. My family was a music family. You know, we would be staying late at rehearsals and getting up early for you know, the, the special selective choir that met at 7 a.m. before school started. What? Um, yep. Yeah. So Wait, that was so, so the family, mom, dad, siblings. Yeah. 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 So actually, I'm the only non-music major in my family. Wow. That's interesting. Everybody else was a music major. I actually I did a music minor when I was in college, um, but everybody else was a my, my two sisters and my dad were both music majors. What do they play? What what instruments? My um, my two sisters. I mean, prim- my two sisters and are primarily vocalists, but they both also play piano and a couple other instruments as well. My dad plays piano, sings. Um, I kind of buck the trend. I don't play piano. I play guitar. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So actually, Vladimir and I both play guitar. Yeah. We've talked about that a little bit. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I play guitar. Um, when I was in grad school, I actually used to, to make a good bunch of side cash by playing at farmer's markets, playing on the street, stuff like that. Um, what, did, what did you play? What kind of music? Oh man, mostly kind of old school folk. I think you you play what you want to, you what people want to hear, right? So, and I I grad school at uh, UC Berkeley, uh-huh. so I was playing. You know, on the streets of Berkeley, what do you play? You play the Indigo Girls. You play Joni Mitchell, uh-huh. right? You play. Um, I love James Taylor. That's probably probably my my most idolized musician is James Taylor. Uh, but stuff like that, you know, girl with a guitar kind of stuff, right. singer songwriter kind of stuff. Oh, so you can sing too. I well, you can be the judge of that <laughs> if it ever, if ever we get we get to that. But um, but yeah, yeah, I do sing. So, right, you have a regular voice that sounds like you can sing, but uh, I I didn't know, I didn't know. That's so cool. Uh, That's so cool. You know, I always wanted to sing. I cannot sing for the love of God. I cannot oh, no. sing anything. And then classical guitar. That's what I got into classical guitar because I never liked the. Uh, I, I mean, I like I like all, all kinds of music, but then grabbing a guitar and singing, nope, that was a no for me. Then the first time that I listened to one of these uh, melodies by, I think it was Moonlight Moonlight Sonata played on okay. the guitar, I was like, oh, yeah. dude, can you do that? There are a lot of really good adaptations of, of classical pieces for guitar. I think my favorite is probably the Bach cello suites mm-hmm. that are adapted for guitar. Um, I, I, st- I got super into classical Yeah. when I was maybe in like middle or high school, um, Pennsylvania used to have these awesome summer programs called the governor's schools. Uh-huh. Um, and they were five or six weeks summer intensives that you could, um, apply to or audition for as a high school student. Mm-hmm. And if you got in, you had this sort of paid summer program. Um, the governor's school for the arts was the, the oldest one and it would bring artists together. It would bring musicians uh, you know, visual artists, actors, writers, um, and uh, and all kinds of people 
together to um, to live in, in almost like a commune. They hosted it at Mercyhurst College up in Erie. Right. Um, so the summer between, I think, 10th and 11th grade, I was there for classical guitar. Um, and I got really serious about it, practiced, you know, six hours a day and like oh, going wow. to workshops and lessons. And yeah. uh, but it was it was a really cool thing. And I think they discontinued it a couple of years after that because of budget constraints. But I mean, you know, if anybody in the government of Pennsylvania is listening, bring back the governor's schools. Man, that, uh, that's and it like wasn't a, like a camp. That was awesome. Yeah, well, it was kind of like a camp slash summer program, I think. Right. Uh, they had a bunch of them. There wasn't just the arts. There was a governor's school for, I think there was one for public health. I uh -huh. think there was one for agriculture. It was kind of like all of the things that high school students are interested in mm -hmm. that might be kind of vocational further down the line. And they would have these summer programs that were sponsored by um, the governor of Pennsylvania, the governor's office. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I do hope those uh, eventually come back. Yeah. I haven't touched on them in, in a while. Oh my gosh, so interesting! I wish we could keep uh, talking about. Yeah, that. I love I love music, but let's circle back. So, um, yeah, we're here to talk about science. So, no, 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 we're here first to talk about you, and you're super interesting, of course. Oh my gosh, that's Thanks. awesome! Yeah, let's circle back to okay. So, weird kid who likes to write and read, then develops <laughs> this taste for math. Yep. Um, yeah. High school, you didn't get enough math. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, then, I did really like math. Yeah. Okay. So let's focus on the high school stage. You're running out of sure. math. Uh, it's a big moment, a, a big uh, time in your career now. You need to decide where to go to college. Yeah. Please uh, describe that to us. Where did you go and why did you choose? Yeah. So that it's kind of a funny story. Um, I grew up here in State College. Um, the employees here get a pretty sweet deal. Uh, you get a 75% discount on tuition for your kids. Shout out to it. I uh, know. <laughs> so I, my dad worked for Penn State. And I really kind of always thought I would go to Penn State. And if yeah. I worked really hard, I would get into the Honors College. Yeah. Um, which is funny because now I'm a, an, uh, an advisor for the Shire Honors College here. So I get to see all the undergrads that are going through uh, the Honors College. Um, so yeah, I thought if I worked really hard, I would go um to to Schreier mm -hmm. um and so I was always my family was um pretty strict about grades and things like that so I got good grades um I also was a good test taker um mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a skill people don't realize that test taking is it's is a skill it is it is yep. so I did really well on all the standardized tests um and this was still during the age of the SATs mm -hmm. right and so I went to take my SATs um and I got the scores back and I honestly thought that they were wrong like my friends would be like, oh, what did you get? And I was like, oh, there was a mistake. They have to, they have to fix it. Um, because I had gotten a perfect score on the SAT. Oh my God. Uh, and so when we figured out like, no, that wasn't a mistake, you know, I, I really did. And and my mom started being like, well, maybe you should apply to a couple other places, right? Maybe you should apply, you know, to more places than just Penn State. So I started kind of looking in earnest and it started off as a joke. Uh, my family's super conservative. And so my mom said, you know, why don't you apply to Princeton? Because it's the most conservative out of the whole Ivy League. Okay. Right. Um, conservative, so, conservative in terms of what? Like po politics. Oh, oh. I think okay. I think she thought that you know the the Ivy League schools are you know without that's where the liberal elitists. Liberal, right. Um, okay. Right, and then Princeton. I would say Princeton is more conservative than the other Ivy League schools, but only by like a tiny bit. I think okay. it means like a slightly higher percentage of students identify as politically conservative. But I see. But anyway, that was that was kind of the joke where it started. And then she said, well, if you get in, we'll buy we'll buy you a sweatshirt. <laughs> so my, my family was pretty solidly middle class. Yeah. Um, we didn't think there was going to be any way for us to afford to send me anywhere other than Penn State. Uh -huh. uh, so I applied to, I think, maybe six different schools, a couple of state schools, a couple of kind of reach schools like Princeton. I think I also applied to Cornell. Um, cause that kind of fit in with my image of what college was. I did not apply to Harvard. I did not apply to MIT. Um, I did not have those kinds of aspirations. Uh -huh. Um, but then, um, I got in, right. And wow. so, and this was back in the age when you were still getting things in the, the snail mail. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I remember getting the thick, the thick envelope, right. It was the thick one if you had gotten in and the thin one, if, if you hadn't. Right. And so I saw it and it was thick and I was like, I don't think my first thought was was happiness or or joy or anything like that. It was, holy crap, what do we do now? <laughs> what do I do now? Yeah. Um, and it was kind of one of those fork in the road moments where you know that if you turn down the opportunity that's been handed to you, yeah. then you 
you're going to ask yourself for the rest of your life, what would have happened if you had chosen the other way? And I think that's eventually what did it. Um, So I did, I did go off to Princeton. Um, I did my undergrad there. It was an absolutely wonderful place to spend four years. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but I was like, I'm going to do engineering, right? Because Mm -hmm. I had kind of had this, this debate, like, do I really want to go into the music or the arts somehow? I don't think that's, that's very secure in terms of, you know, making a living someday. Of course, always. Yeah, well, I think the other thing is like, you can't really do engineering as a hobby. Yeah. Like you need a lot of specialized training, whereas right. music you can always do as a hobby. You can always keep keep at it. Right. Um, and so that was really kind of what drove me there. But um, I, I decided I was going to go and I was going to go do um, mechanical and aerospace engineering um, as my as my major. Um, and uh, so I went and I started taking all these classes and they totally kicked my butt. My first semester of college, huge wish, wake up call. My grades were not great. Um, my, I was taking physics. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was kind of arrogant because I was like, oh, I've already taken multivariable calculus. You know, I can, I can go take the version that the math majors take yeah. instead of the regular version that the engineers take. Oh my gosh, the worst decision. It was like material that in theory I had already like had, uh-huh. right. But it was so different, um, to do it in the context of a real college course. Right. Um, yeah. So I actually, the end of my first semester, I was really thinking about dropping out of engineering. I came really close to dropping out of engineering. Oh my God. Um, and, uh, I was, I was like, this is, I can't do this. I'm not cut out for it. Um, and there were two things that changed my mind. One, I had a physics instructor, not a professor, but, um, uh, sort of like a, almost an adjunct kind mm-hmm. of teaching professor that was mm-hmm. running the smaller sections of the big lecture. Yeah. Um, his name was Vangal Muthukumar. Um, and he really kind of encouraged me and, and believed in me, um, and uh, I, I kept going to his office hours and, and he was like, no, you, you absolutely can do this. Um, and the other thing that happened was I had um, a friend who was a couple of years ahead of me in mechanical and aerospace engineering. He was a junior and he said, you know, you really should take a real engineering class before you decide to leave engineering. Right. You know, math and physics and chemistry, like obviously you need those, but they're not really as much fun as the courses that you take later on. Right. Um, and so um, my friend Zafir was like, well, why don't you take fluids? And I didn't realize until later on uh, how unusual this was. But at Princeton, in the mechanical engineering department, mechanical and aerospace engineering, fluids had a reputation as being the fun, easy class that everybody liked. No way. <laughs> yes. Absolute honest truth. Yeah. And so um, I people would normally take it, I think, in their sophomore year. Uh-huh. Um, but I had all the prerequisites for whatever reason, I had everything in place and I took it during the spring of my freshman year of college. Um, and it absolutely, it was fun. It was easy. It felt easy. Um, and I later kind of was like, you know, cause every university that I've been at since then fluids is like the dragon class. Fluids is a class. Everybody dreads, everybody thinks it's really hard. Yeah. Um, it's really discouraging. Yep. don't like it. And it, it wasn't just me. And, you know, everybody who was in my department at Princeton was like, oh, yeah, fluids, fluids is the best. And I was like, what? Um, so I looked back at my material later on. It was not that it had been dumbed down at all. It was not made less rigorous. And so I really do think that it was all because of the instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy who taught my undergrad fluids class, um, his name is Lex Smiths, Alexander Smiths. Um, and he was just a legend. He was a phenomenal teacher, mm-hmm. phenomenal advisor. He later ended up advising my um, senior thesis because everybody at Princeton has to do a th- uh, senior thesis to graduate. Um, so uh, Lex Smiths ended up uh, advising my my undergrad thesis, um, and I ended up taking his grad level turbulence class as well as an undergrad. And so all of that together kind of pushed me into being like, I love this. I love fluid mechanics. This is this is what I want to do. Um, and so I went from kind of dropping out of engineering to I love fluid mechanics and this is what I want to do. Oh my God. This is wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's I, I, a great part of it is due to, to Lex and he's just phenomenal. Right. Right. It's uh, good to, it's good for everybody to listen to the struggle that you had, even being yeah. a, a, a genius, uh, such a remarkable person <laughs> like you. Yeah. I mean, you are uh, given your career, your path until you reach uh, Princeton, you had struggle and everybody struggles yes. and then finding a way out of that. 
uh, finding a mentor, finding somebody who yes. can advise you. That's very important for all the listeners, not only academics, but, uh, you know, students and the public in general. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Margaret. Uh, so, and then after that, you went on to do great things. You went to grad school where? Uh, I went to grad school at UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of interesting because I had had this opportunity to do my senior thesis. Um, and at the time, um, there was a project on the hydrodynamics of manta ray mm -hmm. locomotion. Right. Um, and uh, every year they would tap an undergrad to build the next iteration of the manta bot. So we were building a robot manta ray and every, you know, every year there would be an undergraduate who would kind of improve on the Mantabot. Right. And so I, I approached Lex at this point and was like, you know, can I work on the Manta project as my, as my thesis with you? And, you know, he was like, sure. Uh, and so I spent my senior year building this, this Manta Ray and it was definitely an experience. You know, I, I don't think I, I want to do that again, um, <laughs> but I did build a robot Manta Ray and that was cool and fun. Um, and I wasn't, um, amazing at it you know i probably wasn't the best undergrad researcher they'd ever had uh but you know i stuck with it um and that got me really interested in biolocomotion mm -hmm. uh, and so i ended up at, at berkeley in part because they had a center there called the center for integrative oh shoot the center for integrative biomechanics and education and research mm -hmm. um cyber uh and they had um a type of grant that was called an IGERT. And I don't think this exists anymore. I think it's been replaced by something something else, but it's an NSF program that basically gives a bunch of money for the training of graduate students in an interdisciplinary area. Mm -hmm. um, and so Cyber had gotten this IGERT grant to fund um, animal locomotion in complex environments. And I, I thought, you know, that sounds like exactly what I want to do. I want to study swimming in turbulence. I want to study how things swim in turbulence. Um, and so I got this two-year fellowship um, to go and be funded by cyber to do this work in complex, uh, you know, uh, environment, animal locomotion. Um, yeah. So that's how I ended up at Berkeley. Uh, except the problem was once I was there, there wasn't anybody who was working on fish hmm. or, or really swimming at all. Mm -hmm. uh, there were, there were people who were working on running and flying and, but there wasn't really a lot in terms of fluid mechanics. Um, and so I ended up stepping a little sideways from mechanical engineering into civil and environmental engineering. What? Yeah, yeah. And so um, because there was a guy, um, Evan Variano, who eventually became my PhD advisor, uh -huh. he was part of this um, cyber IGERT um, because he was interested in plankton hmm. swimming. Um, and he was interested in how plankton move through turbulence and are transported by turbulence. Uh, and he was like, well, do you want to come and work in my lab? And, and, you know, if you want to understand how animals move through turbulence, you should probably understand how they're being passively transported by turbulence. Um, and I was like, okay, well, you know, that sounds, that sounds logical. Um, and if you've ever met Evan, you know that he is a great salesman. He's a fantastic salesman. Uh, and so before I knew it, he had sort of bait and switched me to doing a PhD on fundamental particle laden turbulence <laughs> in his lab with absolutely no biology in it at all. Right. Um, which, you know, wasn't to say I didn't learn about biofluid mechanics. You know, I did a lot of reading. I was part of this community of people working on animal locomotion problems. And so I, I really did get to absorb a lot of the language of that field. Mm -hmm. um, went to seminars. Uh, my husband and I actually met at a seminar from, from that program because <laughs> uh, he was also a, a trainee in the same program when we were in graduate school. Right. Um, but yeah, so uh, so I did. I I really kind of built my fluids chops there. Um, I was in an environmental fluid mechanics kind of graduate group. Uh, a lot of people sort of doing oceanography adjacent work. Um, really kind of fundamental stuff, uh, and so that was good for me. I think it really built up my my cred in 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 the basics. Right. Uh, turbulence. Um, data analysis uh, and and the stuff that I I had needed. Through, through the rest of my career. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, fast forwarding a little yeah. bit. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you finished up grad school, I think. Finished up grad school in 2015. 2015, yep. and then postdoc right. for two years? Yeah, I did a postdoc um, for two years. And this is another kind of serendipitous moment because at that point, um, I had a geographic constraint. Um, my husband had graduated from UC Berkeley in 2013 uh -huh. and he had taken a postdoc at UCLA so that we could be reasonably close. Right. 
we were long distance for a couple of years, but when it was time for me to get a postdoc, I was kind of constrained to Southern California. Right. Um, and I emailed a ton of people. Um, and you know, the answer was kind of always the same. I'd love to work with you. I don't have any money. Would love to work with you. Don't have any money. Right. right? Um, and so there was exactly one person who said, I'd love to work with you. Let's go find some money. Okay. Um, and, and that was my only shot. And I was ready to, to leave academia if it didn't work out. Cause we had applied for this fellowship together. Um, and, uh, it was, um, kind of a long shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, if I didn't get it, I was like, okay, well then I'm going to, I'm going to leave academia. I'm going to get a real job. Um, <laughs> but, but we did. And I, and I got actually the NSF postdoctoral fellowship in biology. And this was right. following, you know, NSF has funded my entire career in science. Yeah. Um, I had the NSF for two years. I had the NSF GRFP for three years after that. Um, and then I had this postdoc fellowship for two years, yeah. uh, biology. Um, and I actually got to work in a, in ecology and evolutionary biology department. Um, and my postdoctoral advisor, really great guy, Matt McHenry, um, at UC Irvine, mm-hmm. um, was primarily doing work on, um, predator prey interactions in fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was interested in working with a group of animals called tenophores, um, which are, Common, commonly called comb jellies. They're um, gelatinous marine zooplankton. Gelatinous just means squishy, right? So they're <laughs> like little squishy balls that drift through the ocean. They're kind of like jellyfish, but they're not actually very closely related to jellyfish. Right. Um, I was really interested in them because I was interested in this this idea of how things drift through turbulence, how they're kind of moved around by turbulence, and how that's a function of their size and their shape. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other reason I was interested in these guys was they're the the largest animals in the world that locomote using cilia. Wow. Uh, are these like super primitive animals? They are super primitive animals. So actually tenophores um, evolutionarily have been in more or less their current form for about 500 million years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they're super old and there's uh, more and more evidence. I, I'm going to hesitate to wade into this science fight because it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. Right. Uh, but uh, when we think about uh, evolution, we think about the tree of life, right? We think about the branches, right? And everything right. comes back to a common ancestor and every branch we call, that's the sister group to all the other branches. Every time the tree forks, you're like, okay, well, there's the the sister group to everything else. And so in terms of animals, we fought for a long time that the very first branch, right? The first, uh, the oldest kind of um, organism was, was sponges. And we kind of made that argument because they were very primitive. Sponges are basically just bags, Right. Um, but we have a lot more tools now, um, tools from a, an area called um, molecular phylogeny, um, which has to do with, you know, I'm totally going to butcher this, but my understanding is that you take um, the DNA, right, and kind of look at similarities and differences in, in organisms' DNA to try to see which evolved first. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's more and more evidence that tenophores came first. Um, and so that they are, they are the sister group to all other organi- all other animals, I should say. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting from, from a biology perspective is that they these guys are super old. They've been around for a really long time. Um, but from a fluids perspective, I was interested because of the fact that they have these cilia, right? And the cilia, you know, if you think back to, you know, high school biology, cilia are these little hair like structures yeah, yeah. that move flow back uh-huh. and forth. Right. Uh-huh. You find them on really tiny things. You find them on tissue, like in your lungs. That's mm-hmm. what's kind of passing mucus or, you know, helping you in your in your respiration. Right. Um, you've got these carpets of these little hairs and they're all kind of beating in sequence um, to, to make the flow. Um, the tenophores are, are a little different because their cilia, instead of being a few microns long, their cilia are about a millimeter long. Wow. Um, which, yeah, I know. Right. So that kind of is enough if you if you're thinking about fluid mechanics that's enough to give you the side eye right because in fluids we think a, a lot um about the balance between inertia and viscosity right 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 we think a lot about that right we think about really large scale flows fast flows they're dominated by inertia and the friction of the flow isn't slowing them down very much uh-huh. whereas if you're really small or if you're moving really slowly then the viscosity of the fluid really matters a lot correct kind of adapt your swimming strategy to yeah. to accomplish that. So right. I would put cilia solidly in the viscous dominated kind of category, right? It's sort of a canonical um, system. Um, and, you know, we would say a low Reynolds number system where Reynolds number is the ratio between inertial and viscous forces. Right. High Reynolds number is like a 747. Low Reynolds number is like a bacteria. 
Um, and so when we see cilia that are about a millimeter long, then you've increased your Reynolds number by, by several orders of magnitude. And you've got something that is normally seen at a very low Reynolds number hanging out there, moving faster, being bigger than it has any right to be. So I was interested in the scaling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we're not there yet, but that's actually a perfect segue into the the NSF fluids funded project that we have right now. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that segue. All right. So yeah, second section of the podcast. And I think that you have also a meeting that you have to run to now. Or uh, No, actually, I have a meeting at 11. So we're, we're good for a little while yet. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. So let's begin the, sec- the second section of our podcast. And that's about your NSF sponsored research, of course, sponsored by the Fluid Dynamics uh, Program hence fluid conversations. All right. So um, I'm not going to ask you to tell us the title of your project because mm-hmm. nobody remembers and nobody cares. <laughs> so tell us something about that. Let's talk, Let's begin with the research part because we know that NSF, well, I explained that to the listeners that every NSF project has two parts, the research and the outreach. Let's begin mm-hmm. with uh, research. Um, what would you say are the objectives of this project? Uh, project? Yeah. So um, one thing I do want to say about this project, just so I'm absolutely sure I'm giving credit where credit's due. This is a collaborative project yes. um, with Chen Yu Li from Villanova. Um, and Chen Yu's phenomenal. Um, and he basically, we we met at a conference several years ago and somebody connected us saying, you know, I think we would get along really well. And I had these high-speed videos of these tinafores, these animals, um, in part from my postdoc and in part from uh, some a little seed grant that I'd had when I just started here as, as faculty. Mm-hmm. And I, I had these high-speed videos and and I showed them to him and he was like, oh yeah, I think we could do a CFD simulation of this. And I was like, cool. And I sent him the videos, totally forgot about it. About a year later, he was like, hey, we've been working on this. Here are some simulations. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he showed me these beautiful um, computational fluid dynamic simulations of, uh, of the flow around the sort of... Um, videography that we had done mm-hmm. um and so that was really the start of this um collaboration and so i i, I want to make sure that i hat tip Chen Yu because you know many of the ideas in this are, are his um but yeah so we're we're looking at the scaling of ciliary hydrodynamics which is a fancy way of saying what we were just talking about is you know what the heck are cilia doing yeah. that lets them be successful right at really tiny scales, you know, one to 10 microns, uh-huh. all the way up to a millimeter, uh-huh. um, which, you know, I think probably to the average person, that's like, okay, well, that's small and smaller. Right. Uh, but that's actually, you know, a pretty wide range of sizes. Oh, it is. It has several yeah. orders of magnitude. Yeah. Uh, and so you don't often see that. Um, and, and so we were kind of curious, okay, well, what are the secrets in the flow that might help explain why this strategy is being used at these two kind of different scales. Um, so we wanted to look at how uh, both the hydrodynamics and the kinematics uh, scale as you move from really small to really big. Um, and in part, um, so when I say kinematics, I mean, if I have this little hair-like cilia, how is it bending, right? Is it bending in a different way mm-hmm. uh, from smaller to larger? Um, and then the other thing is um, there's been a lot of work done on cilia, mostly in the numerical computational realm. Uh, but when you when you do these kind of mathematical or computational models of of cilia, usually you've got like a big flat plate that's full of cilia, right? And they're all beating, and you look at the way they interact, whatever. But in a real animal, they're not actually on a flat, rigid surface, right? They're usually on something that's kind of deformable. Maybe it's curved, right? And so that was another question we were really curious about: is how does what the cilia are kind of stuck on, how does the curvature and the flexibility and deformability of that, how does that affect the flow? Um, and uh, and so those were kind of the specific aims of this project. Right. Um, we wanted to look at how the flows themselves scale um, and how the characteristics of the substrate or the thing that they're embedded in, um, how does that affect the flow as well? And And we kind of thought, well, that's that's good from a fundamental science perspective, yeah. right? When we think about how cilia scale, but it's also good from a technology development perspective. Um, you've probably been hearing a lot about soft robotics. Yes. yes. Huge up and coming yep. field. Yep. Um, and so uh, in terms of a bio-inspired device or a bio-inspired vehicle, we figured, well, if we can understand how these kind of flexible structures interact a little bit better, that's going to inform the development of these bio-inspired 
devices and, and technology. Absolutely. So Celia propelled squishy things. Nice. Celia propelled squishy things. Yeah. And, and we've come a long way. Um, we have a couple other projects on this topic right now. And um, I would be the last person to call myself a roboticist, but I, I, I've got to admit that we are doing some stuff in our lab with soft robotics, which is I never, ever thought we would be doing. Right. So eventually you evolve in your research. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of, Research is funny because you you have to develop the tools mm -hmm. to answer the questions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the tools are not what you expect. Right. You have to learn a lot of things that seemingly are not related to the question that you want to answer in order to answer the question. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yes. what, uh, what are some activities and methods specifically that you uh, are going to apply in this project? Yeah. So uh, we use a technique called particle image velocimetry. Okay. Um, which is really common fluids, and you may have had other guests who've talked about this, but the basic principle is that when you measure flow, you can't measure flow directly without some kind of trade-off, right? If you can, you can put a probe in there, right? Maybe you've got a little propeller and you want to, you can see how fast it spins and get the flow speed from there. But just by putting something in the flow, you're changing the flow. Correct. So in a lot of cases, you want to do something very non-invasive, and that means using imaging, right? You're going to use a camera to measure the flow, but... If you've ever tried to measure flow from just looking at it, you know that that's really hard. Um, so what I usually um, explain is if you're out in the woods and you come across a stream and you want to know how fast the stream is flowing, what do you do? Hmm. What right. do you do? Right? Right, right. You drop something in it. Right. right. You drop like a leaf or a little twig and you look at how fast the, the water carries it. Right. Um, and so that's really effectively what we're doing. Um, we take our flow. Usually we're working in water flows, um, but you can do this in, in air or any anything that flows. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you put something in it. Right. Uh, and so in our case, we use uh, little hollow glass microspheres that are very small, about 10 microns. They're neutrally buoyant. Mm -hmm. And we're going to say those are tracers. We're going to assume that those particles are passively following the flow, no matter mm -hmm. what it's doing, every twist and turn the little tracers that we've put in the flow are going to follow those twists and turns. Uh, and then we have to somehow image those. And so we take our high-speed cameras and we have a couple of different techniques that we use. We can use laser illumination, which affects that it scatters the light from those little glass particles, makes them light up like Christmas so that they're easy to see right. with your high-speed camera. Um, and then the other technique that we use a lot is actually a cousin of particle image velocimetry, PIV. We use PSV, which is particle shadow velocimetry. Wow. And that just means that we, we use a backlight. Um, and so instead of seeing the laser light scattered off of our little glass spheres, we see um, the shadows. Uh, and so that's um, that's also been a technique that we use a lot because you can do it with a, a long working distance microscope objective. So we can look at stuff that's the scales that we're interested in. Um, and so that's what we do. We use a lot of high-speed videography and clever tricks with with optics to try to track our little tracers uh, and then look at how the flow is moving. And from that, we can get things like, well, okay, what are the forces that are being generated, right? What's the um, the pressure field uh, that is that is kind of hanging out inside the the velocity field? Um, can we can we unpack that a little bit? Can we look at how it changes? Um, I would say one thing that also makes my lab a little bit unique for an engineering lab is that we do work directly with animals. Um, so that part of it's not being done by a collaborator. That's that's not you know we go out and tap a biologist to do our dirty work. We are we are actually out in the field collecting critters. Um, uh, last couple of years in a row, we've gone out to Friday Harbor Labs, um, which is the University of Washington's. Marine Field Station. It's in the San Juan Islands off the coast of Washington State. Mm -hmm. Absolutely beautiful place, um, but it's it's really very biodiverse there, especially for marine invertebrates. Um, and so we can we walk out to the dock uh, and we use the very very scientific method of cup on a stick <laughs> to get the animals that we want to measure. We bring them back to the lab and we put them in front of our high speed cameras. Uh, and in some cases, we have you know multiple high speed cameras pointing from different angles so that we can kind of get a three D sense. Right. Uh, what they're doing. Um, and so we have uh, 3D kind of tracking. Um, we look at, you know, how these animals maneuver using yeah. the, your cilia. They actually have several rows of the cilia, kind of like little rocket thrusters that are that are all around the body of the animal. E these animals are around a centimeter in size. So they're not huge, but they're not tiny. They're not mm -hmm. microscopic. Um, a couple of centimeters, maybe. Uh, big. That, that's yeah. Big. So, yeah. yeah, the biggest ones I've seen are maybe a little over 10 centimeters. What? Okay, that's huge. 
<laughs> yeah, they, they get actually really big. The deep sea ones get bigger, but the ones that we tend to get are the more, you know, open water, uh, you know, higher, higher up in the water column kind of species. Do they really behave? That's something that I have heard from researchers using oh animals. God, so. No, they don't behave. No, right? Like, I, okay, no. Show me yeah. what I want to see and they do, don't do it, right? No, they don't do it. And, and I think that's part of the challenge, right? Is because when you're looking at, um, you're an engineer, you're like, okay, I can't tell this animal to beat its cilia at exactly right. 25 hertz, yeah. right? <laughs> so you're, you're doing this kind of observational work. You're, you're getting what you can from the organism, but you also have to supplement that with something else. And so that's where um, the modeling side comes in, right? Where, uh, you know, Cheng Yu actually and his students have gotten a lot of mileage out of taking the videos that we have. And so they can take those videos and uh, they can take out every other cilia to see what would happen if they were further apart, right? right? They can manipulate it. They can change the Reynolds number of what's going on um, a, a lot better than than we can. Um, and so they can do those manipulations. That's also part of why we've started some robotic modeling um, to, to try to have a, a tighter control over that and really kind of um, get to the the really fundamental basics. Animals are messy. Yes. You know, they're not, they're not necessarily doing, they have a lot of things that vary together. I mean, they're busy. Come on. They're busy. They got a lot to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's another kind of soapbox that I I tend to have is engineers often romanticize biology, right? We often are like, oh, evolution has had millions of years to perfect this, right? And but what does that even mean, right? Um, my favorite way to think about this is let's say you're building a robot tuna, right? Mm -hmm. Tuna are fast, they're efficient, they're a big target of bioinspired design. Uh -huh. um, and so people really want to imitate tuna. They want to find out what makes tuna so efficient. And, you know, a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about this. So let's say you go and you build your tuna, right? You build your tuna robot and it looks like a tuna and it swims like a tuna. And even all the other tuna can't tell that it's not a tuna. And you're like, awesome. I've optimized this robot to swim fast and efficiently. Well, no. So the, the question that I would ask is, does your robot need to poop? <laughs> Right? Does does your robot need to find a mate? Does your robot need to escape from predators? Right. You know, right. You've optimized for all those things too. And if you're just copying the tuna, and I think that's the difference between biomimicry, uh -huh. right, which is you know strict imitation of yeah. biological system, right, and bioinspiration. Right. Right. In reality, what we're doing is we're trying to understand the physical principles and the fluid dynamic principles that allow this animal to have whatever performance characteristic that you admire, whether it's being stealthy or maneuverable mm -hmm. or efficient, right? Those are all things that we might be able to use as, as engineers to, you know, to promote human flourishing, which is really the goal of, of all engineering. Um, and so I, I think that's a, a real kind of thing that keeps me humble Right. Uh, when I'm kind of wading into this is the fact that I have to have a pretty deep understanding of the biology if I'm going to understand how to kind of disentangle all of this. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. 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 Super exciting. Uh, very interesting. Uh, what can you tell us about the broader activity, broader impact yeah. activities that yeah. you guys are doing? So this is a really fun one and it's near and dear to my heart uh -huh. uh, because as part of the broader impact side of this project, I get to go back to my old high school oh my God. every year. Um, yeah. And so um, I uh, I am a proud graduate of State College Area High School. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, my family has been in this area for a while. My dad is a graduate of State College Area High School. My niece will be there in a couple of years. If, wow. you know, my kids will go there. We're yeah. still around here in, you know, 10 years. Um, but yeah, so uh, I have a pretty deep connection to this community. Um, and so I, uh, I actually go and I teach um, a guest lecture every year in physics mm. uh, at the high school. Um, and I, I, we talk about low Reynolds number versus high Reynolds. We talk about the concept of the Reynolds number. Um, we do some demos on uh, swimming um, at low Reynolds number uh, versus high Reynolds number. Um, and then the other thing that I get to do as part of that um, is I get to talk to these kids about career stuff, right? And these are all kids that are in, you know, mostly upper level physics classes. They're thinking about careers in science. They're thinking about careers in engineering. Um, and I think it's a really nice thing for me to be able to be like, hey, I was I was walking these very halls yep. 
when I was your age. I was in, you know, these activities that still exist. And and this is this is how I got to where I am mm-hmm. uh, and being able to answer questions. Um, I think that's also really important from uh, a role modeling standpoint. You know, when I was um, looking for role models, there weren't a whole lot. Um, my I've I've had in in nine years of education in engineering, I've had exactly one female professor wow. uh, of an engineering course. Right, I've had female professors of like my gen eds and stuff, but but there was really only one. Um, and that was not until I was in grad school. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I, I think it's really important for people to be able to envision um, themselves. Uh, and I don't think that means that we need to push people into science. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think they need to see it as an option. And I think the more uh, representation that we can have at, in all levels of science um, across different demographic groups and across people with different experience too. Um, I have a postdoc in my lab right now who's a first-generation college student. Um, and that's really informed the way that he views the world and the way that he views um, science. And I think that uh, those are the kinds of diversity that we need represented in addition to just demographic diversity. We need kind of diversity of experience. And so um, I like to be able to do that. I like I like to be able to kind of hold that up and be like, this is what I'm doing. And exactly. if you wanted to, you could do it too. No, exactly. That's a great point, Margaret. So, and something that I feel very passionate about is uh, bringing diversity, not only as you're saying, you know, uh, demographics very important, the, uh, yeah. the, the life path that you have. Not everybody had the same one. And now that we are facing some challenges, you know, in our department, and uh, I mean, I'm not going to elaborate on what happened, but it was interesting to me to see the contrast between the opinions expressed by some uh, faculty with, uh, let's say, traditional career paths and, sure. um, you know, being part of the the majority of being yeah. not first generation college, having mm-hmm. parents with the graduate degrees, with a PhD. Yeah. And me, for example, that I, my parents were illiterate, basically. They, mm-hmm. One of yeah. them need, need, didn't finish elementary school. The other one did, but that's it. That's it. And having that background, that life experience and how when we're facing challenges, they are sometimes looking after, what about me? Right. Mm-hmm. And again, not elaborating on what happened, but I, I heard some, you know, many people saying not exactly that, but what I heard was, what about me? What about me? I mean, we are in a, we are going through something difficult right now. We have to pull together. We need to work as a team and, you know, prioritize, uh, you know, the challenge at hand. And that's important in, in what you're saying, that bringing people with these different backgrounds, uh, it gives a different approach to research. It, it breaks out the problem in many different ways that you have made not even considered before. And exactly. That's important. Exactly. And I think that's that's something that I think gets overlooked in all of the hype, right? Is you're not just kind of trying to check a box here. You're like you're trying to really push forward yes. the, the cutting edge. And to do that, you need perspectives, right? If everybody is kind of trained the same way and exactly. is thinking the same way, that you're not going to make advances. And I think this is another um part of the way that I was trained and that the way that um you know, part of the broader impact of this project is the interdisciplinary training of students mm-hmm. uh, to think across, um, you know, the the traditional kind of silos right. um, to think in different ways. And the first PhD student who was funded by this project actually graduated last um, <clears throat> summer, Adrian Herrera Maya, who I think you know. Shout out um, to him. <laughs> yeah. So uh, shout out to Adrian. He did really great work on this project. He's now a postdoc at Brown. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Um, and he's doing really cool stuff at the interface between disciplines. And I think that's, you know, we don't, we think a lot about broader impacts in terms of public outreach, but I think just this, this cross-disciplinary training of the next generation of scientists, I think is a huge thing. Um, I know that uh, Cheng Yu over at Villanova is training his students to think across these disciplinary boundaries, to think about biology, to think about, um, you know, experiment and simulation and how those things work together. Um I, I know that Cheng Yu has also gotten a lot of mileage out of, um, you know, biology is fun and cool, right? Every kid goes through a phase where they want to be a biologist. So if yeah. you can draw that connection, you yeah. can involve um, more people than you otherwise would. And so I know that he's got a program at Villanova um, that is for middle school Girl Scouts. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he has a module on, you know, bio-inspired flows and and um, bioengineering and and kind of drawing people in with that link. And and with that, right, the more kind of perspectives you can draw into this, because you don't know where the next big idea is going to come from. Exactly. You don't know where the next big advance is going to come from. And wouldn't it be a shame if the person who was going to generate that big idea looked at this career and was like, you know what? That's not for me. Right. For some or, stupid reason. Right. right? You don't even know how yeah. to get into that. They don't know how to get into it. They don't yeah. see anybody who looks like them. They see yeah. it as incompatible with their um, their personal goals. One of the other things that I'm, I'm working on right now is we've, we're just starting maybe a project with another colleague here at Penn State to try to unpack the role of um, family and parenting in the way that people make career choices. Mm-hmm in academia. Um, and so, uh, I think that's, you know, kind of selfishly, I've gotten interested in that since I've had my own kids, uh, <laughs> but, you know, we lose a lot of people, men and women, because they don't see, you know, uh, a career in academia or in science as compatible with their other life goals, like meeting a partner or having a family. Uh, and so I, I just think that's a huge loss. Um, if we are purposely kind of building up walls so that fewer people can join us and, and then, that doesn't really make sense for anybody. Right. It's a demanding job. And sometimes some people take it as a calling for uh, doing something bigger yeah. than me or whatever. Right. Sure. I have heard that even in our department. And I never say anything, but eventually it's a job. It's a sure. job. This is not yeah. you. This is not you. Yeah. I, I like to tell my students, you know, your worth as a human being is independent of your success or failure yes. as scientists. Um, I actually, I, I, when I teach, I say that before every exam, you know, if I, I'm about to hand out the exam and I say, you know, I just want to remind you, your performance on this exam has no bearing on your value as a human. Exactly. Um, and you know, we can get really caught up in that. I think it's good to remind ourselves, um, to, to lighten up. Um, I've got a poster on my wall here, um, from, uh, the, um, Arnold and Mabel Beckman foundation, Mm -hmm. um, who funds some of my other work. Um, and he has he has seven rules for success. Uh, and uh, my favorite two rules are uh, number three is everything in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> um, and number seven is don't ever take yourself too seriously. Right. Uh, and I think that's that's words of wisdom. Words exactly. Of exactly. Uh, just to wrap up the podcast, Margaret, just a couple yeah. More questions that I have for you, and this sure. is mostly directed for um, so the people in the general public get to know how we disseminate this. How will how are you gonna disseminate the findings from your research? And just talk to me like I don't I don't know what conference are, what papers are, right. what journals yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a bunch of audiences that we are kind of considering to be stakeholders. Mm-hmm. One big audience is other scientists, right? And yes. so we our work in scientific journals, peer-reviewed journals, um, and that peer review means that other scientists have looked at it and kind of scrutinized our work and said, yes, you know, this is, this is acceptable work, right? Or or hopefully. Um, And so that's primarily how we reach other scientists. And so we've got a couple of papers already from this project, uh, and we have a few more in the pipeline. Um, Another way that we reach other scientists, especially scientists across fields and across career stages, by presenting at scientific conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these can be here in the U.S. or they can be international. Um, we go and we talk about uh, our work at these conferences. We give a presentation, we um, answer questions, uh, or we have a poster maybe. Um, and when I say we, I mean me and members of my lab. And so mm-hmm. we're before we end, I really want to shout out to the students that have been involved in this project. Um, so Adrian, we mentioned, um, and then Hai Kong Lee, who is a relatively new member of my lab. He just started his second year of his PhD. Um, those are the two students have worked on this project. Yep. Um, and then a couple of undergraduates as well. Elizabeth Sieber uh, got a lot of the preliminary data that, that helped us get this project funded. Um, and then um, Carlos Abarca worked on this project. Uh, and then I'm trying to think of a few other undergraduates as well um, who worked on this project. Yeah. Um, uh, the, their names will come to me. But um, but yeah, so we will go out and do that. Uh, and the other thing that I like to do is go to other universities and, and give talks about my work. That's a huge source of cross-pollination of ideas and finding new collaborators um, is to go and, and visit other universities. So those are sort of the primarily way that we distribute this stuff to other scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I was really excited when you uh, asked me to do this podcast because I feel like that's a way to reach people as well. My pleasure. Um, and uh, and of course, I go over to the high school uh, and I talk to people there. Um, that's primarily the way that we're disseminating our work right now. Um, but we're always on the lookout for for more opportunities to reach the public as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And yeah, yeah just to wrap it up, what would you say to the regular person, the blue collar individual working day to day, living paycheck to paycheck? How would you explain to them that this research is important and we need to keep funding it? Uh, I would say you never know where the next big thing is coming from. One of my favorite examples of bioinspiration is uh, the origin of Velcro. Right. So mm. we use Velcro all the time. It's on yes. your kids' shoes, right? It's probably going to be on your kids' Halloween costumes tonight. Velcro came from a guy who went through the woods and he was pulling burrs off of his dog. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, these are so hard to get out. They're so sticky. Why? I wonder why. Mm. Right. And now many years later, right? He was not setting out to create the most ubiquitous reverse reversible fastener yeah. ever invented. Right. He just wondered why. And so that's what I would say is that wondering why leads to really surprising things. And it's so important that we wonder why. Exactly. It's part of the human nature. You cannot stop asking why. You should always yeah. keep asking why. And uh, hopefully the funding agencies are still interested in that kind of research and not so much in what I'm going to get out of it. Right. How well, the I... other thing is you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot with that, right? Because if yeah. you already know the answer yes. before your start, yes. then you're only ever going to take tiny steps, exactly. right? You're exactly. only ever going to take tiny steps. If, if you invest in these kind of basic wondering why kind of curiosity-based projects, right? then that's where the real big leaps come from. It yeah. really is. And you yeah. can look at anything in the history of science and, and see that. Exactly. Uh, hopefully the administrators up top can uh, listen to this. I doubt it. But anyway, let's wrap it up and shout out to, let's see, let me see over here to my analytics. Let me see my analytics. Shout out to our six Spotify followers. That's right. Six. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we're growing. I'm going to go follow on Spotify so that you'll have seven. <laughs> Thanks so much, Margaret. We're growing. Audience yeah. size since the last seven days, one episodes played uh all of them okay a number of 67 plays all time that's incredible for a podcast about nothing or <laughs> research slash getting to know the researchers 72 percent of our listeners are listening in the united states hey listen to this 22 percent from mexico who knows that's why awesome. who knows that's why? awesome right i, that's I don't know fantastic. why <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, from the United Arab Emirates, 3%, Australia, That's 1%, cool. yeah. Italy, 1%, uh, 23 So the listeners are, let's see, 41% between 23 and 27 years old, 17% between 28 and 34 uh, years old, and... Uh, our colleagues likely in the 35 to 44 years old. That's 26%. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the end of our episode. Before we go, I must say that none of the opinions expressed here reflect those of the National Science Foundation. The objective of this podcast is to create public awareness of research and to increase public outreach. The next episode will drop next month. At some point, I'm not sure when, but I promise that it'll happen. <laughs>